This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. Listeners will know that we've recorded a series of podcasts lately looking at the practicalities involved with different forms of tenant insolvency, including administration, CBAs and liquidation. Another route which occasionally comes across a landlord's horizon, albeit rarely, is a receiver being appointed over a tenant company's assets. In unfortunate circumstances, a landlord might well find its own assets subject to the appointment of a receiver. To explain more about this, I'm joined today by Bethan Cunniff of our corporate restructuring and insolvency team, and by Tony Guthrie, a partner from Gerald Eve, who is often appointed as a fixed charge or LPA receiver, and who has agreed to tell us a bit more about what that involves. So Bethan, can I start with you? Let's start with the very basic beginnings. What is a fixed charge receiver? A receiver is an individual who is appointed by a creditor that holds a charge over the assets of a debtor. And very generally speaking, and we will touch upon in more granular detail, the exact kind of ambit and scope of a receiver's powers. But very generally speaking, a receiver will be tasked with charging assets, managing those assets and receiving income from those assets. And in most cases, a chargee will appoint a receiver to the assets of a chargeor in what's called a private appointment. And what we mean by that is the receiver is appointed pursuant to the contractual terms of the relevant security documentation. So in that scenario, what we call a fixed charge receiver appointed by a contract, the terms of the receivership, which of course will include the powers of the receiver, will be a function of the security documents. However, as you touched upon in your introduction, Emma, the holder of a mortgage or a charge created by deed over the assets of a charger also has the statutory right to appoint a receiver. And that statutory right arises pursuant to the LPA 1925. We should say at this juncture that the power to appoint a receiver pursuant to the LPA is actually quite a bit more restricted than under a private appointment. So a receiver appointed under an LPA enjoys far more limited powers than a receiver appointed by virtue of a security document. And so for that reason, as I'm sure Tony will touch upon a bit later on, in the vast majority of cases, at least that we see, a receiver will be appointed pursuant to the security document. So that will be a private appointment. Okay. And so when would you expect to see a fixed charge receiver appointed? The precise circumstances in which a chargee may appoint a receiver will largely depend upon the terms of the security documentation, as you'd expect. But ordinarily, and in very high-level terms, a chargeor will have defaulted on one or more repayments of the loan, or will have committed some other kind of major act or omission which amounts to an event of default under the relevant loan or security documents. And typically, in these types of scenarios, the occurrence and event of default will enable the chargee to demand the immediate repayment of all of the secured liabilities of the chargeor. So if such a immediate repayment demand is made, but the chargeor fails to satisfy that demand, then most security documentation will permit the chargee in those circumstances to appoint a receiver. Generally speaking, what sort of powers are then granted to a fixed charge receiver? So there is a distinction to be drawn here between a receiver appointed pursuant to a private appointment and an LPA receiver. So with regard to the latter, an LPA receiver is tasked with the relatively narrow function of receiving and accounting for income that derives from the mortgage property. So the key distinction here is that with an LPA receiver, he or she does not have the power to actually sell the property. 
And this, of course, is another key reason why we ordinarily see kind of private appointments and we don't usually see LPA receivers. So I suppose from the landlord's perspective, to the extent that you are liaising with a receiver or in some way connected with a receivership, it, it is worth, if you can, kind of trying to get to the bottom of exactly how the receiver has been appointed. But I think it, it's fair to assume that the majority of receiverships will arise by virtue of private appointment. Actually, I do think it's worth making the point that the the title being used, LPA receiver, can be a bit misleading because we refer to the office holders being an LPA receiver, notwithstanding the fact that they will almost invariably be appointed under by way of the mortgage deed rather than the Law of Property Act. So naturally, one should look to the the mortgage deed to see what the powers are, rather than assuming from the title that the individual has been appointed by way of the Law of Property Act. Yes, that's a good point, actually, because I mean, so often and it's come up in other podcasts we've done, you know, the, the people use all sorts of descriptions for what's going on. And then you find that that's not actually what's going on. So it's always worth, you know, as we say, start from the basics, find out what it is you're dealing with first. Tony, you often work with lenders to assist in the recovery of, of loans. I mean, what most commonly causes a lender to enforce on a loan to recover the monies that have been lent? Well, as, as Bethan has said, you, you, there's got to be the breach as the starting point. My, my experience is the most common breach will be a loan to value default rather than actually a payment breach. And the real breach, of course, is the failure to repay when the demand is made in the light of, of, of that technical breach. But lying behind that, I would say the most usual cause is a loss of confidence. And the lender will usually have been working with the borrower to try and find a way out of the the problem that's arising and will go so far until eventually there's a a fundamental breakdown of trust which will cause the lender to conclude they've no choice but to step in that may be um, particularly triggered by the lender having to inject further cash into the project for instance a stalled development and as soon as the lender is having to put more money in, it will want some sort of control. And the control is, is, is best achieved by putting in its receiver. So I would say that although the breach is the technical justification, it's the loss of confidence that's the real trigger. Yes, I'd agree with that. Actually, when I've come across receiverships, it's, it, it has all been about that. It's been a lender working actually closely with the borrower, but reaching a point of realising that that's not actually getting them where they need to be and obviously you've got the on the ground experience Tony what sort of types of situations do you find yourself becoming involved in in fixed charge receiver appointments well at the moment there is a reluctance a greater reluctance than normal for lenders to be stepping in because of the difficulties out there in the market at the moment both the practical difficulties because of restrictions on how people can operate but legal difficulties from things like the the moratorium on tenant evictions. So although most lenders that we're talking to are concerned about the future and the expectation of a lot of uh, action being needed on tidying up their loan book, they are not intervening at the moment unless there are unusual circumstances peculiar to that particular loan and I've used the example a moment ago but uh, a a stalled development a failed development where if you don't take action now 
the situation will get a lot worse. And that's what we're seeing at the moment, by far and away the most common incidence. Otherwise, I would say looking forwards, um, it is retail where everybody's expecting the biggest problem to come. The, the, the market, the retail market has really seen a structural change and there's very little expectation of a bounce back to the situation pre the pandemic for that asset class. So I think retail uh, and particularly secondary shopping centres are where the concerns are strongest for the future. Um, the other point that may trigger rather broader action is the involvement of the regulator. And in previous cycles, we haven't had the sort of regulatory regime that banks are dealing with now. So after the global financial crisis, the regulator just wasn't there. They were brought in as a consequence of that crisis. Now they are imposing all sorts of tests on the lenders, which may well force lenders to take action on their loan book that they don't necessarily want to take against individual customers, but may have no choice because of the requirements of the, uh, the regulator. Yes, that's a really good point, actually. I was reading about that the other day. So that's going to be interesting to see how that works. And is this like saying, how long's a piece of string? I mean, how, how long does the receivership process take? You know, how long can your appointments last? Well, the, the, there's no statutory timetable, if you like. So it, it, it is heavily dependent on what the appointor is, is wanting achieved. At its simplest, it could be to get the receiver to execute a quick sale but even a quick sale is probably a, a three-month process by the time you've assembled the information and actually run the sales process less than three months would would, would be a, rem a remarkably quick event so at, at the quick end you're talking three months the longest receivership that i've had knowledge of and this wasn't one i handled but the longest one i've come across was 12 years so that, that that's a pretty broad spectrum of possible outcomes, but maybe something between three and 12 months would be the most common. 12 years, my goodness. Sometimes I think litigation cases go on a long time, 12 years. But, you know, as you say, it's, an, you know, and our listeners you know, will be very familiar with property and they'll know that, you know, property isn't an overnight thing and, um, you know, it's it, it takes time. And often, you know, there's a reason why the company's got itself into difficulties, there's some problems need to be sorted and what have you. And that, that's not an overnight magic wand fix, is it? It's, it's fairly rare for um, tenant companies to, find themselves subject to an appointment but you know beth Ann, from a from a landlord perspective you know what do landlords need to be aware of when a receiver is appointed in respect of properties subject to a fixed charge that's owned by a tenant company i mean it does happen now and again i won't seek to repeat what we've already covered on the podcast but i think what's perhaps key is just bearing in mind the powers of receiving the fact that they are particularly broad so you know Tony's touched upon a few of them and, and namely the power to sell um, but it also includes a kind of broad brush power generally speaking to carry out any action necessary or conducive to kind of getting in possession preserving and potentially selling those assets so that can include pursuant to a power of attorney which you'd already ordinarily expect in the security documents the ability for the receiver to enter into contracts on behalf of the borrower. So an example where this might apply would be if you had the redevelopment of a project, for example, and a receiver believed 
that it would be in the best interests to proceed to complete the redevelopment in order to actually you know, realise the maximum value upon a sale, then a receiver would be entitled to actually go ahead and redevelop that project. So I think as, as well as bearing in mind the kind of broad scope of a receiver's power, to the extent that we are dealing with a relatively you know, niche or rare example where a tenant has found itself in a situation in which a receiver has been appointed over its charge property, then it's worth bearing in mind that a receiver has the power to collect in rents. And so in the event that a receiver is appointed, a receiver will often direct that any and all rent and other income derived from that property be paid direct to the receiver rather than the landlord. And at that point, the landlord would have no right to receive the rental income from the property, nor would he have any authority to manage that property. And similarly, a receiver does also ordinarily have the power to sell the property with vacant possession. So this would enable him or her to submit legal notices to occupiers requiring them to vacate prior to the sale. So, of course, this would impact both in terms of the kind of rental payments that a landlord would ordinarily expect to receive and, of course, the identity of the incoming tenant. But that said, I suppose one of the reasons why it's relatively niche um, in those types of circumstances, a landlord can generally expect to be able to forfeit a lease subject to the usual reliefs on forfeiture, which I don't believe are kind of within the scope of this podcast. And similarly, the appointment of a receiver would not ordinarily affect the ability of the landlord to nevertheless pursue a guarantor or have recourse to a rental deposit to the extent that there is one. Yes, that's right. I mean, all those remedies are still there for landlords, aren't they, in those circumstances? From what I have seen, there's usually a reasonably good dialogue in those circumstances, because actually people tend to want the same thing, which is to, you know, get some cash in. I mean, that's that's what it's aiming for, isn't it? Landlords are used to, I would suggest now, sadly, in seeing administrators appointed over their tenants and will perhaps be familiar with the fact that administrators are protected by law so it's it's very difficult for a landlord to to take action without either the administrator's consent or indeed the court's involvement. It it perhaps is worth pointing out that a receiver has no such statutory protection. So if the, the landlord were to find the leasehold asset under the control of the receiver the landlord should be looking very closely at the contents of that lease, looking for forfeiture provisions, looking for the receiver complying with the terms of that that head lease, as otherwise forfeiture is a very real threat that the landlord could be using. And I think just following on from that, Tony, it's perhaps worth at least briefly touching upon how a receivership differs from other types of insolvency procedures, such as administration or liquidation. So in an insolvency process, such as administration or liquidation, an office holder is appointed to the company and and that office holder is appointed to the entirety of the company. So will be tasked with the management and the control of all of the company's business and assets. And in that scenario, the office holder will replace and displace the directors in terms of the day-to-day running and management of the company. And they will be looking to achieve the purpose of the relevant insolvency procedure, which of course depends on the relevant procedure, but can either be rescuing the company as a going concern in the event um, of objective one of administration or in the more terminal circumstance to realise and distribute the company's assets for the benefit of the whole body of creditors. So to kind of contrast that to the position of a receivership, with regard to a receivership, management is not displaced by the receiver. And as we've explained, a receiver is only appointed over and in respect of the relevant charged asset, so doesn't have the same kind of 
far-reaching powers that an office holder would have. Similarly, a receiver doesn't have the same kind of investigatory powers that an office holder would have, so doesn't have the ability to obtain information about the business and assets of not just the company, but the company's lender base. And lastly, I think the other point that's worth fleshing out is the fact that unlike an office holder who owes his or her duties to the entire body of creditors, a receiver owes his duties almost exclusively, but certainly primarily to the appointing chargee. So to the extent that you have not appointed a receiver, then unfortunately, in contrast to the position of an office holder, your views will, will not be paramount or necessarily taken into consideration. For, for those of your listeners who might find themselves in the unhappy position of having a receiver appointed over one or more of their assets, people in those circumstances can often be understandably very unhappy about the appointment and not want to cooperate or engage. But the point you make about distinguishing between a receiver and administrator is, is a really important one because the receiver will in due course relinquish office and will leave behind a trail of financial dealings, all of which the landlord company has got to factor into its own accounts. And a good example would be VAT accounting. So the receiver will have run some rudimentary offsetting of VAT, but that will be bequeathed to the landlord when the receiver vacates office. And a landlord is going to have a much better outcome for itself if it engages positively with the receiver. And being hostile and difficult, actually the net loser is the landlord. Uh, and it is important, therefore, to understand the difference between the administrator and the receiver, because there are some real practical consequences that the, uh, the, the, the landlord who, whose property has been affected should be aware of. And you're talking there in terms of the landlord, if the landlord itself has, has a receiver appointed over its assets. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very different scenario, isn't it, in that, in that circumstance? Because landlord PLC, as a corporate entity, is not being directly touched by the receiver. It's the asset, the investment property that is being run in the landlord's name. And when the receiver vacates, those dealings that have taken place are still part of landlord PLC's corporate affairs. And if he's not been involved with that process, not involved in a controlling sense because he hasn't got the power to control the receiver, but involved in a, an informed spectator sense, he will find clearing up the mess afterwards a lot harder. You touched on this earlier, Tony, because we don't see this hugely, you know, from a landlord and tenant perspective. Uh, and so that's why I think, you know, when it does come up, you know, we've touched on all the various areas of confusion, you know, that arise. Um, we've seen a lot more CVAs since since the pandemic. And it will be interesting, as you say, to see how the market plays out. It will be interesting to see how COVID does impact on receivership appointments, won't it? Oh, well, it'll be hugely interesting. But... Our pr prediction for what it's worth is, is that the pickup in appointments will closely follow what happens with the moratorium on uh, dealing with tenant default. Uh, and as that gets lifted, currently scheduled for the end of June, but I certainly wouldn't be um, taking a big bet on that date not being moved again. Um, I think that 
the lifting of that will be where we start seeing a significant pickup in receivership activity. Yes, that makes sense. Well, thank you very much both for explaining this very interesting area. I'm sure our listeners are going to be pleased to have learned a lot more about the practicalities um, involved with receivership um, and how it compares to the other forms of insolvency which perhaps they come across more commonly. Um, so my thanks to you both um, and to our listeners for joining us today. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. 